Welcome to Photo Mission Focus, Discussing Photography, a podcast all about the things that we love about photography. This is Focus on Rotation, where I have different hosts joining me at the desk as we share and learn each week. Come and enjoy this week's episode with us. Welcome to this episode of Photo Mission Focus. In the studio with me this morning, I have Robert Gray. Robert, how are you going? Very well, thank you. Mate, thanks for coming in. And look, I'm kind of uh, excited to sit down and learn a bit more about your photography and where you're up to. I know you've had a pretty long career. You're currently, would you class yourself as retired photographer? Yeah, pretty much, yes. Yeah, fantastic. Robert, I think today's on this episode, we'd like to talk about archiving and preserving your work and that's something that you've probably dedicated the last few years that you've been doing to your with your life's work pretty much yeah I decided a long time ago that it sort of should be done I used to be in a position where I could move around Australia I was very involved with the AIPP the uh, Photographers Institute yes and at one stage I thought that we should even though I wasn't in any committee position at the time, I'd well stepped back by then. I knew, of course, a lot of photographers around Australia, uh, and there are many around the world, whose careers have taken them to many different places and done many different things. And, of course, they've recorded everything. And if they've held on to their film stock, which is what it was in those days, and if they have kept good records, they are sitting on potentially a terrific social, industrial and personal record going back many decades. Exactly. And look, we've seen, look, I've seen recently there's people have unearthed glass plate negatives from underneath people's houses and all types of things. And there's some of the stuff that's been recorded, even in that type of stuff, has been incre- shows an incredible insight into how things used to happen. Yeah, certainly. And... The problem, of course, with what you're talking about is that the pictures are lovely and technically they're terrific and they give us a... Those of us who have a photographic knowledge, they give us a window into how things were recorded and how people dressed and so forth, but we don't know who the people are, where the pictures were shot, which family was involved, etc., etc. And we have now the tools to probably remedy all that because the the ability and cost to uh, take in all sorts of information besides the image are at our fingertips. Yes, yep. So with the the current kind of project you're working on, so as well as recording those images into a digital format, are you adding more context to it, like where it was taken, that type of stuff as well? You're adding adding some Mm. additional information? Well, I'm not doing it in the one place at the moment. I have this uh, rather extensive spreadsheet of all of the jobs that we did. It's an Excel spreadsheet and it sits on my laptop, but the images sit on a rather large computer on the other side of the room. At the moment, the two are not connected. Yes. But the numbering system that goes with that spreadsheet is attached to all the images. And when we get to a point where we are complete in terms of I'm sure there's no more images to either find or describe or give numbers to, I will sit down with the two computers on 
you know, adjacent to each other, and we'll go through the image and we'll adjust all the, uh, we'll adjust everything there, and then we can say it's done. Yes. Yep. But that's still a way off. I'd like I'd like to take you back to the, I suppose, back to the point where you first thought about embarking on doing something to preserve these images. How long ago did you actually kind of think, okay, I really got this big archive, I need to do something with it? Probably about. 15 years ago. Yep. And we're now at 2021. So that always gives context. Yes. As I said, I I always thought that there was a terrific resource there. And in Australia, as most people know, we have a state division of many things. Yes. Uh, We've got three levels of government here. I always had thought that I could approach the National Library in Canberra and offer to coordinate bringing together images from all over the place. And there are terrific people all over Australia who have wonderful images and have had the experience and the archive to to sort of make it happen. But of course, you know, and I got to a point where I actually went there, saw them, spoke to them, and they are not interested. Yes, yep. Also, at state level, they're not interested, primarily because it's a massive job of work. Their immediate reaction is, oh, we don't have the budget for that. But invariably, uh, if you deal with people in the commercial world, that's their first weapon when they want to uh, deny anybody anything. Oh, no, we don't have the budget for that. In actual fact, I've struck that in the commercial world as well, and I, I had this rather terrific client for many years who um, at one stage said to me, oh, no, mate, we don't have the budget for that. I said, no, 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 hang on, Ronnie. You do work for name deleted, certain company? Oh, yes, yes, he said. And I said, and I've been a supplier to you for a long time. We get on really well. Uh, That's right, yeah. But that company that you work for and you personally, that's the same mob that probably about two months ago, took everybody off for a two-week jolly in Fiji on a uh, an executive retreat or something similar. Oh, yeah, he said, I get, <laughs> I get what you're talking about. I said, so don't tell me you don't have the budget for it. Yes, that's true, but you do have the money. Yes. The money is there. It's just you're just not deciding to spend it on what we want to do at this it's, particular it's, time. It's where the priorities lie. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I found that these people in these positions of authority, yes, they they sort of want to do stuff, but there's all sorts of barriers that, and everybody's risk averse these days. A lot of institutions. So, if you tried to have them to take into their archive, even though we knew who the photographer was, where it was shot, what importance it had, the other thing they're worried about is. Model releases. Oh, God, what if we use this picture somewhere and somebody comes and sues us? What if we offend somebody by showing a nipple? Yes. Or, uh, you know, a bum crack or whatever else. Yep. And and you get to a point where the whole thing just becomes so turgidly, administratively, you just walk away and think, nah. And that's where I got to, that point. Yes, and I suppose too back back 
15 years ago too, like uh, obviously the process probably been made a bit easier now with the different types of mediums mm. we have to, to mm. store stuff. So, Well, there was always this curve, you know, if you look at things. All my work basically when digital came along, it was a sort of a – uh, circumstance where I'd decided to step back from to, to, from photography anyway for family reasons. I uh, I moved cities and um, a few other things happened. But in the initial stages of digital work in the commercial field, everything was very difficult, very costly, hard to uh, define in terms of file sizes and file types and colour spaces and all that sort of stuff. So there was a, 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 quite a while there where things needed to change. Also, everything was very, very expensive, not very practical. The cameras and the computer inf- interfaces were, by today's standards, very clunky. Yep. And the two things had to change. The skill level, the definition of files, all that sort of stuff had to rise and the cost of hardware, software, storage space, cloud, whatever's, all that had to come down. And only where I saw those two things start to intersect at a point where I thought, eh, this is now a doable thing. Yes, yep. For someone of uh, fairly modest means. Yes. You know, I mean, you've got the ability now to shoot and edit video on your home computer if you want. Exactly. I think one of the big challenges for society moving forward is preserving, there's a lot of stuff being captured today. I mean, let's face it, in the current economic way, people have their their camera phones, they're shooting stuff every day. Unfortunately, moving forward into the future, 30 years from now, most of that content will never be see the light of day again. It'll be gone. So we've... I suppose it's important that photographers probably even get into the start to get into the mindset of thinking about legacy of their images and where their images may end up in the future and, and hopefully they will end up somewhere, but potentially they could just basically be in a box under a bed. Well, yes, and it's it's not just photographers. I've been going through recently all of a whole bunch of stuff I shot in the 80s uh, in a city called Melbourne here in Australia, uh, where we worked very hard. Man, did we get through some stuff. But I used to do work for all the oil companies, for a lot of the first computer companies, for resource companies that you know started things like Olympic Dam and the Northwest Shelf and, and all that sort of stuff. And I've got, all, got most of these pictures. It's not just the photographers that have to think about this stuff. It's the companies, the state governments, the instrumentalities, the uh, the national governments, the, all that stuff. Yeah, we are all responsible for it. And you're right, it's going to disappear. Uh, mainly because I suspect the perceived value of these things has dropped. Yes, uh, not necessarily the intrinsic value, but the perceived value. And I think this has been, digital has been its own worst enemy that because it's created a platform that so many people can create now, the worth of a photograph back in the days when you were shooting, say, for the, for the age newspaper, to be able to produce an image, it was, it was a, there was a fair bit of technical knowledge required. Mm. 
um, obviously you needed access to uh, to the to the subject that type of stuff. So these days, photographs are created just in a in a in a second, and and people will just fry them up and they they're consumed for a few seconds on the net and then they disappear. Whereas I imagine some of the pictures that you would have shot would have would have went into a newspaper or, or into a magazine, and they had a reasonable kind of lifespan that a lot of people saw those images. Mm. Yeah, they did. All of this, of course, is driven by them with the purse strings, and those people have changed. The benefactorial and historical perspective that used to be in place in the corporate world no longer exists. Yep. I've noticed around the place, not a lot of people have a lot of fun anymore. I mean, <laughs> we used to have a lot of fun. Yes, yep. Um, the joint's driven by uh, pencil pushes and all sorts of people trying to squeeze the last ounce of uh, so-called revenue out of the so-called share price for the so-called shareholders. We're surrounded by consultants and people who want to carve out for themselves a level of importance driven only by the dollar. Yes, yep. And uh, this has trickled down to everybody. Well, I think the whole thing, like I've said, people, the whole fun thing's been taken out of it. When I was a kid, I can just remember growing up in you know the northern suburbs of, of Brisbane and you'd go off on your bike all day and you'd ride wherever and you'd spend the whole day doing whatever. And it was kind of today people's... Well, children aren't allowed to do that same type of freedom. The things that we did as a kid back then, basically today, it's all deemed to be too unsafe. We've, we've kind of had this sanitised society. We're trying to make everything so sanitised and clean that it's changing people's perceptions of everything. Yeah, but in a photographic sense, it's um, we are in many ways driven by our clients and the commercial imperatives. The secret to a reasonable business is always the clients. Yes. Yeah. Um, What's the reason? You, you, it's the reason you have a business is a client. Well, one would hope. Yes. <laughs> uh, and also to feed your kids and your family and to live, you know, have a roof over your head and all that sort of stuff. So, Robert, what's the process you've started to um, to do to actually take those and, and these are all images from negatives, transparencies, on different formats, I imagine. Yeah, what, everything from 35mm up to 4x5. Yep. So, And so, the occasional 10x8, which I've put aside. Yep. So what, what, what process have you kind of engaged to actually do that? Well, for a long time I've floundered a lot. Uh, and we'll talk only about the photographic component because... There are many stages to get to before you actually get to a point where you can start shooting or start taking images in. Uh, the first, and I'll be brief about it, is to make sure that the material you've got is enumerated properly. Yep. Uh, you know where it's come from, who it was shot for, and the subject matter. And the fact there is to get all that stuff put into the database. Yep. Then you can start thinking about how to uh, absorb it into a system. And for a long time I floundered something chronic because there was so much stuff. Yes. And because the 
original material was of such a wide variety of colour, black and white negatives, 35mm medium format of many sizes from 645 to two and a quarter square to six by nine to six by 12 and in all those different emulsions plus the four by five material. Yes. And I floundered a long time. I thought I could find somebody else to show me how to do this. And in the end, I had to sort of virtually give myself a slap across the head and say, look, start again. And what I did was I, in my head, said, okay, what if a client came to you and asked you to solve this problem for them? What would you do? Yep, what would the solution be? Exactly. And at the same time, I thought, well, the client's coming to me because I know more about this stuff than almost anybody else. Uh, I've shot all these cameras for all this time in all these different places and studios and on football field and, you know, Commonwealth Games and all over the place. So let's work it out. So I tried. I uh, One of the first things I did was dragged out my 4x5 CNR system because I would have to have a system which would allow me to use the same device. Uh, in this case, it was a camera. Yes. Um, the same format size, the same lens, all that stuff on all of the different materials so that when they were in the raw files which have been taken into Lightroom, they all have a consistency. Light source, yeah, image size, all that stuff. So the first thing I did was buy myself at a photo fair, I bought an almost complete old Canon FD slide copying system. Yes. I had already a Nikon slide copying system. Yes. And I had a 4x5 camera with everything, all the lenses and bellows and frames. And if those of you who know CNR cameras, they are a wonderful thing with all this adaptability. Just just on the slide copying systems, just for people maybe who are listening to the podcast and kind of trying to get in their head, I suppose, that picture. Yeah. Essentially, this is something that's a holder that holds the image a certain distance from the camera and you put a light source behind it and you're actually taking a photograph of the slide, basically. That's correct, yeah. In the old days, these things were manufactured not only for slide copying but also for macro photography. They allow the camera to be put onto one end. There would be a bellows on a rack system so they could be enlarged or shortened and at the end there was a sort of like a little structure which held a colour slide or a, or a negative. So the Canon one is more adaptable than the Nikon one but they both were made to do all sorts of different things. But the, the slide copying systems, for want of a better word, would allowed you quite conveniently to do, to do a one-to-one copy yes. of a 35mm transparency onto colour film or black and white film, which you would then process and make a print. Yes. At the outer reaches of this system, you could put a macro lens on, the bellows at the other end of the camera. There's all sorts of tricky things which people do, which, to be quite honest, I've never involved myself with. Yep, yep. But they were great bits of gear. 
Yep. So essentially, it's like virtually holding the slide to a to a window. Yep. And then taking a picture of it. Yep. Pretty basically. much. Yep. Yeah. They were horizontally mounted too, yes. which was great. Yep. You didn't have to always have this problem of blooming slide copying mounts and looking down yeah. on things, and they were terrific. Yep. But for my purposes, I had to adjust the way they all worked. And probably just add, a, add another layer for people just to, to understand. Sometimes these days when people will take an old, say, uh, you know, print that they've got in a photo album and they want to make a digital copy, they'll put it into a flatbed scanner. And yes. They'll just simply scan it and make but, a digital file. Yep. This is this is a different process that you're basically using. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going the photographic route. Yes. Because it's something I understand for a start. Yep. Uh, it's unlikely to, uh, how can I say this? Uh, once I've chosen the system I'm going to use, it's unlikely to be superseded by anything else. Yes. If I'd started out doing scanning, within five or six years, the scanner would have been, you know, no longer able to be repaired or looked after or anything like that. And to be quite honest, I don't know enough about it. Yes. I know yeah. lots about photography. Yes, yeah. So whatever process I put in place had to be replicable and last a long time. Yes. Um, how, how many images do you think that you'll end up doing in the end? How many do you think you'll get I th- to? I think we've got about 25,000 at the moment. Which which is a, a huge a huge archive, really. That's a lot of, lot of history there. Well, let's not... Let me say how what a, but to get say three frames to go into that archive, I would have had say a job that I shot some many years ago that I might have shot three or four rolls of one twenty film, black yeah. and white and or color negative, which is uh, you know twelve frames a roll. So I've got you know forty eight fifty images for that job. Yes, I might choose one or two. Yes, yeah, and and the rest are gone. Yep. So I, I, uh, I keep that. I, I do the edit. I file them physically. Uh, I keep the ones I've copied, and the rest are gone. So, what process do you use to to do that? To do that culling, how do you? What's the subjective process you use? Uh, knowledge of what happened when I shot it. Yep. Uh, I try to. A lot of the stuff photographically is thunderously boring. Yes. Well, you um, do you do take a lot of shots because you're just waiting for something to happen. So sometimes well, you're shooting some stuff. Yeah, well, you know, let's take an example. I used to do a lot for an oil company and I did a lot of uh, groovy stuff. Yep. Going to mine sites and exploration rigs and people drilling holes and so forth. But a lot of the stuff that oil companies do is about uh, downstream things and oil refineries and people who work in offices and they've got engineers and all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. Now, one of the jobs that I found myself the other day presented with was the black and white negatives, and I shot about 10 rolls of film for a, I think, a 30-year anniversary function for everybody who'd worked there for 30 years. Yes, or a retirement function for somebody who'd been there forever and was leaving. And there are oceans of pictures there of people. Yes. Um, And I'm talking now the mid-'80s. Now, 
in photographic terms, these pictures are thunderously boring. Yes. They're all standing around having drinks. But then again, I noticed that really, I mean, we're talking about a group of people who've been working in industry somewhere for a lifetime, pretty much, who are coming together for just that night, who've got their good gear on and they're all ready for a chat. They've all probably known each other either directly or via a sort of a, you know, the old way of doing things, spoken to them on the phone. Nobody had email or yes, yep. social media or any of that stuff. So I found myself really struggling to reject a lot of this stuff. Yes. A lot of people, of course, at the time smoked. Yes, yep. Uh, there were very few... Uh, women in the groups in those days because there were very few engineers and so forth. But as I said, I found myself really struggling hard to edit it down to a point where I could throw a lot of stuff out. So I found myself copying scads of pictures of people just standing around having chats and all that sort of stuff because the way they dressed, the way they stood, the way they related to each other, that's all probably in the fullness of time, as valid as someone jumping through a ring of fire or whatever else. Yes. You know what I mean? I think that's – look, you're exactly right. I mean, that's that's probably for the challenge for a lot of people who, say, have have a whole lot of images and they want to go off and preserve those images is is coming up with a kind of a, a short list of, of which images do you save and which images do you sacrifice. Well, of course. I mean, that's called editing and we've always yes. always well, done it. Yes. You know, even when we used to shoot uh, football uh, with manual cameras and manual lenses and, you know, in, in the teeming rain on a dark Melbourne afternoon where there wasn't much light and you'd sort of – the wastage, you know, was enormous. But yes. But you managed to get something in the long run and the rest was given the heave-ho. <laughs> yeah, what they call shutter, shutter fodder. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> less so in those days. Yes, you know. well, that's right. Today it's a bit of a, a bit of an issue with the spray and pray mentality. Some people with the fast shooting speeds, but yeah, well, the chimping and stuff has never been something I've been all that keen on. Keen really. on. You know, I, 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 when I used to shoot a lot commercially, the usage of Polaroid was very in vogue. Yes, you know. Uh, let's shoot a Polaroid and show it to the client and make sure everything's okay. Yes. Even in those days, I used to reject that. My usage of Polaroid was probably the lowest of any commercial photographer in the area I worked in because I found it a distraction. Yes. Uh, You do not show stuff to the client. You are there to do a job. And it's not up to the client at that point in time to approve or disapprove of what you're doing, and because, it's a total distraction. Well, it is, I think. And the modern the modern take on that these days is is the tethered to an iPad, where the client's got an iPad and your mm. camera's tethered to it. Mm. So it's kind of it's kind of moved into the digital digital era. Well, good luck with that. That's know. it. Yeah, Robert. What we what we might do is is uh, we might take a break on this one. And yep. we'll come back and because and, I think there's lots to talk about with what, what the project you're doing. But if people want to have a look at what Robert's up to, we're going to put all the details in the show notes. So basically you can go and have a look at some of the stuff he's been doing and read a bit about his, I suppose, his long history in um, photography in Australia. Um, but Robert, um, we'll come back and we'll revisit this um, shortly in the next episode. By all means. Thanks, Robert. See ya. 
That's all for this episode this week. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please leave us a comment. And don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app and social media sites. Remember, photography is a pursuit where there's always something new to learn. Safe and happy shooting, everyone. Thank you.